0: Hello, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast brought to you by the online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program at the University of Maryland. I'm very excited about our guest today, Dr. Arif Kamal, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at Duke University and an outpatient palliative care physician. Welcome, Dr. Kamal. How are you today? I'm very
1: well. Thanks, Lynn, for having me.
0: Oh, absolutely. We're delighted you're here. So you're a palliative care physician. So tell me, what does your normal pre-epidemic professional life look like? Tell us what you do.
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, as you know, the the field of palliative care is growing very quickly, and, and one of those areas of growth really over the last five years has been outpatient palliative care care. Uh, Um, And so we started here at Duke about eight years ago an outpatient palliative care clinic that's five days per week. And we um, co-located within the cancer center recognizing that um, we could lean heavily on the um, the support and infrastructure of the cancer service line to start, and I've now branched into non-cancer as well. So we operate that clinic five days per week, um, and I uh, attend in that outpatient clinic uh, um, to see patients with, with cancer and non-cancer diagnoses, and we've been very proud to see a mix of patients, uh, many of them quite upstream from end-of-life care. So we have mm-hmm. instituted ways to, to really increase referrals around the time of Diagnosis across various different cancers. Mm -hmm. I think my other role too is within, as a health services researcher, is trying to think uh, like a lot of researchers in our field about how to solve problems and to use the right methods to get after them. And so Uh, For example, um, one of the areas that we do research is uh, patient and clinician-facing mobile app development. And the team that I work with, we put our heads together uh, a few weeks ago to try to understand how do we uh, increase... uh, people's uh, reflection around gratitude and the positive things that are happening, particularly in light of, of all the negative news that, that continues to come out. And so mm-hmm. we have started thinking about how to develop tools and strategies so that our colleagues have better ways of, of doing what they're doing on the front lines to take care of patients, particularly inpatient setting, and being sort of more emotionally healthy in doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. So um, anything new on the horizon from that effort?
1: Yeah, so um, we, you know, it's great. I I love my job in in the sense that, one, I work with a really fantastic team, and, and two, being in palliative care means that we have, a really great, you know, view from the nest, right? So imagine an, an eagle's nest at the top of a tree. Palliative care is in many ways kind of up there because we get to see many components of how a health system runs. We get to interact with many different clinicians, with people with various different professional backgrounds who have various different stressors, both them and their patients. And we get to see all the new and Fancy uh, things that come out as medicine continues to change, mm-hmm. and so up from that eagle's nest, uh, one of the things we saw is that there's an opportunity to uh, develop and disseminate, um, you know, an app that can help uh, our very busy and stressed palliative care clinicians, and frankly, other clinicians as well,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, journal their gratitude for the day, which there's very robust evidence to demonstrate that journaling of gratitude, even three uh, simple things things that one is grateful for, happy about, um, or uh, experienced uh, something that went well, that by journaling that every day, and then importantly, sharing it with others that you care about and who you want to share it with can be um, really helpful to address uh, depression and anxiety and also mm-hmm. build resilience. And so mm-hmm. we started working with a uh, partner here in the Durham area, a company called Crosscom, to um Put Bro Bono work together. I mean, the beauty of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of a lot of very impassionate people is you can start putting, putting them into teams and over a short period of time have uh, created a web app uh, that's um, called The Three Good Things. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, um, the website is uh, thethreegoodthings.org. It's a free app that anybody can use to jot down three good things uh, that have happened that day and then they can create a closed group like mm-hmm. you and your spouse, you and your family, you and your friends. You can invite people to join that group and share those three good things with them every single day. That's and then Is it open
0: readily now? Is it available now?
1: It's going to launch uh, within the next couple of days. So, yes, okay. very soon. We are working very great. quickly to get it out.
0: That's wonderful. That's great. Well, we will certainly, you certainly shoot me an email when that's out, and we will help you promote that. That's a wonderful idea. Thank you. So I should mention that you said you're a health services researcher. Uh, Dr. Kamal is our course manager for our course PALC 616, which is Research Outcomes in Palliative Care. That's been a fun experience, hasn't it, Dr. Kamal?
1: It has. It's it's really neat to see people um, grow and learn from being um, anywhere on the spectrum of being frightened by research to maybe anxious about the concept of research to start to be comfortable and i and I think, as any researcher in palliative care knows, um, sort of the more you learn, the more questions you have about how to do things different better or mm-hmm. or more rigorous and so you know research is a lifelong journey of of learning and of answering questions and recognizing there are more questions to ask mm-hmm. um, and I think for students, what they 've enjoyed is. You know, that systematic investigation, um, which, you know, broadly speaking, is is a lifelong skill both to improve, but also is usable even if you're not a researcher. So Mm -hmm. systematic investigation is the same approach we take for quality improvement as well, right? Mm -hmm. So the difference between quality improvement with a lowercase q and a capital Q is that in lowercase Mm -hmm. q everything is quality improvement, right? Uh, You know, getting your puppy trained is lowercase quality improvement, and, you know, getting to work on time is lowercase, you know, anything. Getting the EHR to work a little bit better is lowercase quality improvement. Mm-hmm. Uppercase quality improvement is the hard work that oftentimes palliative care clinicians and administrators and leaders are involved in. It's the hard work of actually driving sustainable change to improve clinician and or patient or health system outcomes. Mm-hmm. And that requires systematic investigation, right? A systematic approach to making changes and systematic measurement to see if those changes uh, are working. And wow. so I think what we really focus on is not in the course, not building future researchers, uh, uh, for, for many people, that's not their goal. It's, mm-hmm. um, it's giving people the skills to be more thoughtful thinkers, critical appraisers, um, and, you know, more engaged leaders for their organizations to be involved in um, doing research or reviewing research mm-hmm. or being part of a leading quality improvement. So Well, you know, you example, mentioned reviewing
0: uh, research. One of yeah. your students, or I can't remember which section it was, emailed me yesterday saying, my professor in this course wants me to <coughs> consider what could be a weakness of a study. What does he mean by that? And I uh-huh. said, well, think of what's going on now with the hydroxychloroquine situation. Yeah. Are there any weaknesses to that data? So what would you say about that?
1: <laughs> yeah. So
0: I um, posted that exact article, actually.
1: And, um, uh, my my wife, who's a pulmonary critical care physician, and I did a mini journal club in our house, which mm-hmm. which is not a reflection of most of the nerdy things we do after we put mm-hmm. our kids to bed. Um, it's not generally our conversation, Farty but you animals. know, in yeah, <laughs> in the moment, as times are, um, it requires us to be quick interpreters of lots of data that are coming our way. And we do that naturally with with everything else that happens, right, is that we have to, oftentimes, we're we're given a a deluge of information. There's no lack of information. And the hard part of what we have to do is interpret it and find meaning. And the same thing happens with research, right? There are more research articles published every day than any human could ever read. And so one, we have to find the ones that are applicable to what we are interested in or do. But Mm -hmm. secondarily, we have to be able to critically review it and find the meaning in it to understand if there is meaning in there that is applicable to me. So for example, there was the paper that I posted to the class, and I said, exactly, tell me what you think are the weaknesses of this article. And the article is the use of hydroxychloroquine plus or minus azithromycin in patients who have nasopharyngeal swab, PCR positive, uh, COVID-19, or uh, novel coronavirus um, on day one of a hospital admission, and then it was compared to controls, and the primary outcome was, the PCR uh, status at day seven. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, without giving the answers away to the students, but I think they're going to figure it out because of the things we've been talking about is, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the control arm. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Funny. It's not balanced in any way in terms of sample size or in terms of characteristics. The study uh, censored or essentially did not evaluate the outcomes of patients who were randomized to the intervention, but then who worsened and went to the ICU. So it was not an intent to treat analysis, which um, in a drug trial is a huge no-no. And so um so essentially you know what my wife and I did is we reran the stats with the data that they had and came up with a different conclusion than what the authors did and uh, you know we're going to use that opportunity in our class to not make a clinical decision about the utility of of uh, Plaquenil and novel coronavirus but what we will talk about is hmm, if you were to design a study, would you have done it that way, right?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And if when you read this paper, does it convince you, and why or why not, that you would do the thing that it concludes? And importantly, as an author, would you, or as a reader, would you push the authors to give you those clinical outcomes, because the outcomes reported were not clinical outcomes, now that the paper is more than three weeks old, Mm-hmm. Um, right? As a member of the scientific community, should we email those authors and say, well, I'd love to know what happened to the people? Did they get better? Did they get yeah. worse? Don't uh, and so on. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's uh, the kind of growth we're, we're looking for, you know, from, from the students to really sort of critically think. So even if you're not a researcher, the point is, is you um, are asked to ev- as, a, as a medical professional, as a healthcare professional, as an administrative professional, you are asked to interpret and evaluate um, data that comes out and to make conclusions about whether it's appropriate mm-hmm. for your patients or your institution or best for even you. Mm-hmm. And that's the types of skills we're, we're trying to get across.
0: And meanwhile, we have Washington sitting on 29 million doses, so that that should be interesting. <laughs> Well, I do know in this course, of all the courses in our program, if you look at the students' feelings going into the course and coming out of the course, we see the biggest, tremendous change with this course, because they really are quite trepidatious about this course, but then they are so proud by the end. At what the course manager yourself is able to pull out of them and to learn about uh, health services research so thank you for your good job on that but let's circle back to what you do in palliative care so in your outpatient clinic do you have uh, multiple disciplines present I assume
1: we do. Um, so crazy. we and are continuing to build that team as you know we do the hard work as a lot of other teams do as well to you know demonstrate the the value and the return on investment of of the health system making investments of other interprofessional members. So that's a it's a constant opportunity for us to uh, address and and you know we we are we we continue to push forward to to expand our team because we believe we're we're better when our when our team is more diverse.
0: Absolutely. So how has both your team and perhaps Duke's inpatient palliative care services changed in the face of this epidemic?
1: Yeah, um, in many, many, many ways. Sure. So, you know, one, um, I'll start on the outpatient side. You know, we have moved the, you know, 95 plus percent of our outpatient palliative care encounters to being Telehealth, meaning either via telephone or telephone plus video.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, we have in that process both recognized the logistical complexities of doing that, um, the care coordination complexities with doing that, and sort of the disparities that start to arise when we do that. So first, related to logistical complexities, we have to reach out to our patients, you know, and both demonstrate a sense of uh, you know concern and care uh, mm-hmm. for them, and a sense of calm um, that says, "We are doing this for your best interest to to mm-hmm. see you over the phone or via video, but this is not a state of panic, and I think when patients are very busy thinking about already so many things related to their own serious illness that when we layer this on top, it's very important how we message to them that, that we're looking out for their best interests, one, and two, that this is temporary, that we are not uh, fundamentally changing the nature of our therapeutic relationship, that we will continue to remain high-touch, uh, but for now, this this is the best way to be able to do that and to keep them safe. Definitely. Regarding care coordination complexity, as I mentioned, many of our patients are cancer patients, or they are uh, transplant patients, or they, um, you know, obviously are seen by other specialists, and we're trying to do this dance where maybe they are coming into the cancer center to receive their chemotherapy labs and scan, but their oncologist is going to talk to them via phone. So even though they're in the building, the oncologist may be in the building, they have decided together that to reduce the... person, you know, face-to-face, person-to-person exposure risk that the actual consultation will happen uh, via phone while, for example, the patient and their caregiver are driving back home after mm-hmm. the labs. And as palliative care consultants, you know, we are trying to follow the lead uh, you know, sort of doing this tango, and then letting the oncologist or the referring clinician sort of lead the dance. And mm-hmm. we're trying to make sure we fit in well, so that we're not asking to see patients face to face when they're not, and vice versa. In the same way, if the oncologists are seeing them face to face, we're trying to, you know, really be really be thoughtful about whether, um, you know, adding face to face time with us is, is, you know, one plus one equals three, or or whether uh, we can also do that via phone. So that's sort of the care coordination complexity, and and then lastly is sort of the disparities that we start to uncover as you recognize when we do telehealth you know for for many of these patients it's it's better or ideal or preferable to to not only do a phone call but do it with video so we can uh, see the caregiver, we can see the interaction between the patient and the caregiver, we can try to assess emotion, and when you turn on video, you get a peek into the patient's world, which is their home, Mm -hmm. and how they live, and and you start to get a sense of who else is in the home and how those interactions go, and, and you also get to see when they say, oh, I've got this... A uh, little Boston Terrier named Fluffy. You get to see Fluffy, which is also a mm-hmm. nice thing as a palliative of care clinician. But we mm-hmm. also start to recognize that by you, by uh, we we require that people have technology and internet access and the ability to have secure you know, video conferencing uh, platforms and apps. And we start to uncover that there is oftentimes not only challenges related to health literacy, but also technology literacy, as well as access to some of these things. And for many of our patients, their vulnerability is not just the fact that they have a serious illness, which is challenging their own resilience and their bodies, but also they have this uh, psychosocial vulnerability, which has to do with sort of the environment and, and how they live. And so we're trying to equalize some of that by thinking about different ways that we can um, you know, um, use, use free software and, and other things to, to try to make that easier, but also recognizing that moving forward from the pandemic, one of the lessons we're going to learn here is that, that there is not equity in terms of access for all of our patients mm-hmm. for these types of just-in-time interventions. You know, for us, telehealth right. is a just-in-time thing, mm-hmm. um, but we have to be more mindful. On the inpatient side, I, I feel for my colleagues, I, I don't do inpatient medicine right now, although I think every clinician in the country is in some state of uh, being part of a backup plan, a search mm-hmm. plan. Um, or being you know plan B or C I, I am one of those clinicians as well What I'm hearing from my colleagues both here and across the country is that palliative care is one increasingly being called upon and I- accepted and valued in a way that that maybe had not been felt before mm-hmm. I think for certain, Um, forward-thinking organizations that have really dynamic palliative care programs that have been around for a long time, maybe that had not been the issue. But I still think for the majority of programs, there is a sense of we need to prove our value to, to... to remain sustainable here. It's not inherent that everybody understands that we are more than an end-of-life service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the good news is, I think, in our experience, and, and I'm hopeful for many other programs' experiences, that the majority of patients that are being evaluated uh, for COVID and rolling in for COVID are not going to die, which means that the fundamental in- intersection between palliative care and patients who are covid positive and being uh, uh, ruled out um, is that we're not going to be talking about exclusively end-of-life issues. Now, we will be talking about planning, you know, hoping for the best and planning for the rest. And naturally, Mm -hmm. the rest can involve death. It can also involve debility. It can involve um, financial uh, worry and, and other things. So there's a lot of things to talk about. We also see that in a moment like this, there are a lot of concerns around medications and and interactions and should we be doing something and treatment interventions and so on that patients and families have. There's a lot of uncertainty around outcomes, meaning, well, you know, nobody's particularly immune. The risks are higher or lower in particular populations and age groups, but nothing is 100% certain. So how do I uh, think through that? Uh, Palliative care clinicians are very adept at, at working through that. Mm -hmm. And then also sort of planning for the things we can't see um, or know. And, um, you know, oftentimes one can take a spiritual context in terms of thinking about acknowledging things you can't see or uh, prove or know that it exists. In the cancer context, we certainly talk to patients about that. For example, when we do a scan, um, and they say, well, Dr. Kamal, the last scan I had showed no cancer. Why is it now three months later my cancer is back? We have to talk about essentially planning, and this is why hopefully you know, we'll have intersected with those patients early on where we have, again, planned for the things that are unanticipated and, frankly, unwanted, um, but that we plan for them in a way so that people have already started to think about Scenarios that are uncomfortable scenarios that you cannot see because they may be too far or too small or too uncomfortable to think about. And so Mm -hmm. COVID is an example of where we are being called upon to do that kind of planning. Now, the day-to-day challenges are this. um, You know, colleagues across the country are facing situations where we are doing consults in patients where we can't go in the room. because we are trying to reduce risk and preserve PPE. We are watching and caring for patients who are dying of COVID for which the family is limited in terms of their ability to be at the bedside during the time of death. That families are, if they're able to watch, that procedures to protect families and staff from aerosolization during the process, for example, of a palliative extubation that, in Mm -hmm. fact, for many organizations, they're not taking the tube out, which oftentimes would be our practice right around the time before death. And so patients' families are are having to see kind of all the equipment and everything in the room um, from a distance while their loved one passes. That's a challenge. Oh, my goodness. We're also finding, right, that when Patients' families cannot be at the bedside, and not more than one of them, for example, is our policy, can be um, in, in the room uh, upstream from death. That having advanced care planning conversations oftentimes are are being done over the phone, virtually, and, and mm-hmm. trying to bring multiple people together through, uh, you know, phone plus video conferencing plus one person's in the waiting room. And so palliative care is playing an important role of coordinating all these people to, again, you know, plan for for plan for the best and, and 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 hope for the best and sort of plan for everything else. And I think the other role palliative care is also playing in the midst of uncertainty, because frankly, as a field, that's where we are comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that we like it. It just means we know um, what that's like. It's um, it's uh, you know, it's like when my children. Uh, insist in uh, April to go to the beach I know the water is really cold is um, I know it's going to be uncomfortable they know it's going to be uncomfortable as well but they are okay getting into it right so mm-hmm. um, it's that experience that starts to starts to bring, you know, some sense of wisdom in this. And everybody's walking around. Patients, caregivers, people, clinicians are walking around with this great sense of uncertainty. And, mm-hmm. and what palliative care clinicians are not only being asked to do is to address the uncertainty on the patient and uh, uh, side, but also on the clinician side. I think we mm-hmm. sense a real feeling of um, anxiety and worry. It's palpable. You can see it in people's eyes. And um, those are the same Eyes we see when we've talked to patients for decades, and now we're seeing right. it in our colleagues. And we see the opportunity to um, debrief with them and demonstrate our humanity all together um, to, to, to try to get through this. So I, I think mm-hmm. that that's the other thing is palliative care is both being asked to, you know, uh, provide clinical care but also take care of our colleagues, and and that's a, mm-hmm. that's an important responsibility one we're set up to do well, mm-hmm. but also one that that you know, is, is a challenge, right? We can recognize that we're good at it and also recognize that yeah, we'd rather be doing something else at the moment, too. Of so.
0: course. But I think the whole profession is very fortunate to have palliative care. Of course, I would think that. That's what I do, too. But yep. um, I think that's a tremendous service. And it occurs to me that as you speak about families, maybe one person watching from afar as their loved one dies, there must be a lot of grief and anticipatory grief, Floating around. How are you dealing with that? Have your local hospices been of any assistance, or how are you dealing with that?
1: Yeah. So we've we've really um, uh, we've brought a lot of visibility to the bereavement services that were already in the hospital, but oftentimes sort of thought as being uh, that palliative care was the gatekeeper into that. And and now the bereavement professionals are really stepped up and and, and and this is their moment um, uh, where a lot of other clinicians who ran the gamut from not even recognizing they're there or, mm-hmm. you know, available mm-hmm. to now understanding that there is a true sense of anticipatory grief and the bereavement is real and uh, and also affects clinicians as well, um, that there's an opportunity to, to uh, address that. Hospices... Um, have done a great job, particularly in our local area, have done a great job Mm -hmm. stepping up to that. Um, They are also facing very unique challenges, right? Again, you know, Mm -hmm. our challenges start both with workforce, right? Um, You imagine a well-oiled machine works really well until one clinician starts to demonstrate symptoms, Mm -hmm. because then you're challenged with all the clinicians, other clinicians that uh, were around that clinician, And so now you can go from a workforce that was fully staffed in a well-oiled machine to within a matter of hours um, being highly stressed because maybe a handful of clinicians now have to go home. And so you went from having, right, an interprofessional, highly effective multidisciplinary team to um, we have one nurse now, Mm -hmm. right, to we have one pharmacist, all the nurses went home. Um, And So that's a challenge from the workforce side. That applies to palliative care hospice, applies Mm -hmm. to all medicine right now. The other thing is hospice care, right, is for most of our patients are at home. And so, you know, being very uh, demonstrating compassion and concern and the ethos of what hospice is, which is we're going to, Take care of people where they are, both you, know, you know, sort of mentally emotionally spiritually and and physically in their own home, mm-hmm. um, now recognizing that being in a patient 's home can be a threat to our own workforce is something that we're, that the field is having to balance and and I think each organization that i 've seen and heard from is is doing an amazing job in working through that, both demonstrating compassion and concern but also keeping a little bit of physical distance that's required to be safe both for the patients and their families and and for our workforce as well.
0: Sure. I have seen locally our hospices have stepped up uh, significantly in terms of dealing with the anticipatory grief that families are experiencing prior to their loved one's death as well as after the death, even though they didn't actually provide hospice care to the patient. Right, right. So often we'll see hospices do that, like for suicide victims and so forth. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess as a pharmacist, I have to ask, how has the drug shortage affected what you all do, particularly with vent withdrawals?
1: Yeah. So we have been a little fortunate here from our supply chain perspective that I I think we stayed ahead of that a little bit. But we're also having to be creative in a lot of different ways, not only because of uh, potential shortages, but also because of the practicalities of having people in and out of rooms that are COVID positive. So, mm-hmm. you know, look, um, uh, we might in, in another scenario provide, um, you know, unfractionated heparin for VTE prophylaxis. But we're gonna. We've, for example, us in our practice moved to once a day low molecular weight heparin for the purpose of providing adequate prophylaxis, but reducing the number of times that a clinician has to walk into the room. We're also cross training, uh, the uh, cross training clinicians who are not used to hanging or administering medications to doing that because what's happening now is every time a clinician walks into a room of a COVID-positive patient, it presents a risk um, in in both directions, really, right? It prevents a risk of secondary nosocomial infection for the patient who is battling COVID within the room. It also presents a risk to the team member who's going into the room, which means Mm -hmm. that our teams are doing a huddle before a clinician walks into the room to understand, can we batch things, like batch medication administration? Can we have if the if the physician's walking into the room to do a physical exam can we have mm-hmm. the physician administer the medications hang a bag, start an IV, do that kinds of things. So what's amazing to see is that nurses are training physicians to do things that they have uh, either barely learned in medical school and then have not done since. Pharmacists are training nurses about creative ways to provide, uh, to administer medications through potentially longer tubing, where the tubing is coming out of the room, so we can mm-hmm. actually administer outside of the room, That's um, but still go in. And now we've got doctors doing things too. So... What's amazing to see is the collaboration and camaraderie that's coming out of this. So this is not, um, well, this is a doctor's job. This is a nurse's job. This is a pharmacist's job. That that Right mm-hmm. now, this is, you know, humans taking care of humans. And what's beautiful to see is that natural breaks uh, uh, that come from hierarchy key, hierarchy, and, and sense of, uh, well, this is my job and this is your job and stuff, all that seems to have melted away because everybody's now mission-driven, and that's
0: uh, been fantastic to see. Yeah, under sad circumstances that finally brought this about, though, huh? So yeah. do you think that um, we are providing good self-care? As palliative care clinicians, as all the professionals out there, Aside from your three-word gratitude thing, which will be greatly welcome, I'm sure, do yeah. you think we're doing a good job of taking care of ourselves and each other? Yeah. I, I worry about that um, a lot.
1: Uh, you know, in some of our work and in some other, uh, other folks' work as well, you know, we've, we really recognize that um, isolation, either either geographic or perceived – meaning Mm -hmm. that you live in a rural spot or you are on a team that is a team of one Mm -hmm. um, or that you feel isolated. So you are used to working on an interprofessional team. You know, normally four people would go in the room to do a palliative care consult and standing on your left is... uh, you're experienced, very experienced uh, nurse practitioner standing on your right is a very experienced pharmacist. You know, standing uh, behind you is a, a you know a fellow who's who's really keeping tabs on lots of details. And and right behind your right shoulder is a is a chaplain. And and you're you're this team. You're this force.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: now, what we're doing is we're saying, well, um, how can we keep the teams as skinny as possible so that we reduce risk? So maybe your team isn't. that that force of five people anymore. Maybe your team is now a force of two, and you're splitting up to do consults so that the other folks um, can stay a little bit protected, provide consults and advice over the phone, but Mm -hmm. there's not that sort of 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 social proximity, physical proximity that that means we're a team. And we know that feeling part of a team is protective, and Mm -hmm. so I worry that the high anxiety, the high uncertainty that we're good at, but look standing next to a waterfall thinking you're not going to get wet, right? We're all standing next to, uh, you know, Niagara Falls uh, right now, Mm -hmm. and we're standing very close Um, emotionally. Maybe physically it feels like we're standing a little bit farther, but actually, you know, we're emotionally very close, that you can't stand next to Niagara Falls and and not feel a little bit of some water droplets on your face, and I worry that that's what's happening. I, I also worry that in the sense of busy when people get busy, situations get complex, stakes are really high, that oftentimes leadership styles can seem to transition away from what I think palliative care is used to, which is, you know, um, collaborate and conquer. I think Mm -hmm. palliative care teams lead by working together and solving problems. Collaborate together, conquer conquer the problem.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, That in situations where there's high stress, and high stakes that sometimes health systems, clinicians, organizations revert as a protective mechanism to a command and control type of leadership style, which, which is not a critique. It may be exactly what's, what's needed for that moment. But I also worry that command and control um, to people who are used to sort of collaborate and conquer um, can feel awkward, right? Can feel rushed, can feel not like there's a shared pool of meaning. It can it can start to feel like, uh, um, you know, that it's very hierarchical and, and, mm-hmm. and one way and, and that kind of thing. So I also worry about care teams just sort of, you know, just sort of kind of functioning in this very different environment in terms of how uh, decisions are made, how conflicts are resolved, how teams are working together—not not not just their own team, but also just you know healthcare teams in in general.
0: And so, any suggestions things, for that to deal with? Uh, that? Yeah. Aside from just being aware. Um, I think
1: there is more need than ever. For palliative care teams to debrief and mm-hmm. to, um, because the nature of communications right now are really about problem solving. Mm-hmm. And um, palliative care folks are used to walking into situations they can't fix. Um, mm-hmm. They can be present, they can help, but they can't take away. Um, COVID 19. Has shifted a lot of communication within health systems to fixing problems. We're short on masks. What are we going to do? We're you know we're going to we're going to recycle them and um, decontaminate them. We are you know we've got uh, we're worried about visitors coming bringing it in. What are we going to do? We're going to shut down doors and we're going to um, do screening for people who walk in the building. Right. There are problems and there are problems to be solved,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's sort of the nature of most communications right now. Um, mm-hmm we have to take the time as a field to remember to be in a room together where we're not trying to solve a problem, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: where we are reflecting, acknowledging, holding the fact that this sucks right now, and Mm -hmm. it sucks as individuals, it sucks as family members, it sucks as being a community member, it sucks in a lot of different ways, Um, and that we are all feeling that. There's a Mm -hmm. shared experience here, and that we can talk through it not to solve it, but to understand that each other is is also struggling, and, and in that there is power. So we have to, more than ever, make sure that our team members are doing that. Second, I think um, we have to remember, you know, palliative care is a very mission-driven specialty. Half of our workforce, particularly among physicians, started out doing something else mm-hmm. and then came to this field, right? Mm-hmm. And... So that means that for many clinicians, they took a pay cut. They sort of switched their, um, uh, you know, their path, which might have been to uh, excel to the next ladder, to the next step, to the next step, to the next step, and kind of got off that ladder Mm -hmm. to another ladder and said, I don't even need a ladder. I just want to be on a palliative care team, right? Mm -hmm. And so with that comes potentially my worry that there is a sense that we are going to give everything we have for the for the goodness of the purpose and i think there is an ability for sure to do that but to not go home with your cup being empty that we have to be mm-hmm. self-preserving as much as we can that we have to fill back our cup by doing non-medical things mm-hmm. though the need is really high Um, I think in many ways we're all recognizing that we're actually running a marathon, not a sprint. Mm -hmm. And so by expending all your energy in mile two uh, is not helpful to anybody who's trying to get to mile 26. And so Mm -hmm. I think as we're recognizing that, that means, yeah, we protect some of our team members. We work in shifts. We share together um, our concerns. We remember that we're all human. And we also acknowledge that – being a hero during a time of a pandemic is not predicated on on uh, ignoring the fact that this is causing personal um, challenges, mm-hmm. right? Being a hero doesn't mean that 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 you're fine with all this. Um, mm-hmm. Being a hero means that you are doing the things to help other people when you're asked to do it, but you're doing it in a way that says you're ready to come back tomorrow and the next time you're asked, whenever that is, which means that you have to take care of yourself. And so in that sort of a balanced approach, I, th- I think you're really, uh, we're, running a, we're running a marathon here, and I, I just want to make sure that our our colleagues are really taking care of themselves, whatever that looks like, that they are taking moments away from The news and and other things to focus on positivity and gratitude, and recognize that in in the moment now, the sun did come up, and here in Durham, it's it's gorgeous outside. The Mm -hmm. trees are coming out. I've got flowers in my backyard. There's a lot of things to be grateful for and be happy about. And just like in everything else, challenges that I faced the U.S., the human race, et cetera, we've gotten through them, and we can be very hopeful that tomorrow will be better while recognizing that we can handle some of the challenges today but that we need to lean on each other um, so we're not doing it alone.
0: Absolutely. Beautifully said. And should all go in your gratitude journal. So good, it will. So good self-care and caring <laughs> for each other is so important. So last question as we wrap up. As you look in your crystal ball, how long do you think this marathon is going to be? Um,
1: Well, it's kind of like giving prognosis, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're in the weeks to months range. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what we'll find on the other end of this is a greater appreciation for palliative care. I think we'll find on the other end of this a greater appreciation for advanced care planning, regardless of who is, is leading that conversation. I think we'll also find a greater appreciation for remote patient monitoring, telehealth, and intersecting with patients where they are. We've been thinking about that in a lot of ways in terms of where they are mentally and spiritually and emotionally and physically. Now, I think we're going to find a lot more attention in where they are geographically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll start to recognize that... that um That the next crisis, I mean, remember, uh, you know, um, most people celebrated Valentine's Day without COVID being one of the top five things on their mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we are merely but 60 days from that point in time. So the world changed quite a bit. It means that I think the role of palliative care and the role of, way, of how healthcare is going to be designed is going to be thinking a lot about how to rapidly respond mm-hmm. and in in prevention. So that now. Regardless if it's novel coronavirus or anything else, we're starting to recognize that humans are fragile things. Mm -hmm. We are fragile, and that means that whether you're 29 or 79, having an advanced planning conversation uh, is is a really good use of time, particularly outside of a moment of crisis. But I think everybody's now going to go home, and when this is all over, look at their children, look at their grandchildren, look at their family, look at their friends, look at the people they care about, and say. You know, this probably going to happen again at some point, and how are we all being best prepared for sharing my personal health care wishes, uh, making sure that people around me know what are my preferences and values, and also recognizing when it depends. It's kind of like when, when I ask the students in the research course, when you tell me it depends, and I say this to my patients too. And I say this to my research team members. I say I say I say this to myself too when I'm driving, and I say, "Well, Arisa, it kind of depends." What does it depend on? Mm-hmm. The answer to that question reflects what's important to you, because it depends is the first answer. What it depends on is the harder answer, and it really reflects what it depends on. So, you know, um, you know, it, it's the it's sort of the classic question, you know. Um, if 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 the right thing to do is being on, is to be on a ventilator for you and that's your personal preference, but sometimes it wouldn't, and it kind of depends. And then I want to know what does it depend on. And if it depends on where you're going to live after that ventilator is done, if it depends on what's the chance the ventilator is going to help you, if it depends on what that experience is going to look like, if it depends on what that's going to financially mean to your family, whatever it depends on without any judgment, I think what we in healthcare, we in palliative care, we as people are going to learn from this is that the it depends matters. And to answer that question requires introspection. And I think there's going to be a lot of that introspection happening.
0: Wow. Very insightful. Well, we've been chatting with Dr. Arif Kamal, palliative care physician and a pretty darn good thought leader insofar as what's been going on with the pandemic and the role of palliative care. So, Dr. Kamal, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate you So. Thank you all for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. Again, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2020, University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.